Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yuel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, what is going on? Uh, a lot is going on. Um, so I had a pretty eventful weekend, um, part of which was spent decorating my friend's Christmas tree. Um, do you engage in holiday decoration activities? In, in holiday activities? <laughs> well, you know, as as a Jew, historically, I've held myself aloof from that sort of behavior. But um, I decorated two trees this season so far, and the season isn't even over, so there might be more to come. Wow. Um, so I, I tried to pretend to be aloof about these things and like put all the blame on my parents. Um, so like, I've never had a tree, uh, at my house in Tuscaloosa. Um, but when I go home to Toronto, uh, I end up like helping decorate the tree and stuff like that. So I can, I can like blame my, I can say that it's just like to be, you know, uh, a good family member and to participate, but I actually like really enjoy it. And we do like these tedious things where we string popcorn. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this. I've never done that, but it sounds super tedious. <laughs> it's very tedious and it's frustrating because so you're taking a needle and thread and putting it through popcorn and often the popcorn just crumbles, you know, like it just snaps in half. Um, but I have very like uh, positive nostalgia surrounding stringing garlands of popcorn. So I will be doing that in a couple of weeks. Hopefully. And I guess it would totally defeat the purpose to just buy popcorn that's already on a string. Absolutely. <laughs> Not allowed. Wait, so, okay, so there's a, some sort of like holiday related hubbub, but it didn't quite get what the hubbub was. Oh, just that a, a, a friend of mine is very into the holidays and Christmas music and things like that. Um, and so she had people over to decorate her Christmas tree. Um, so she has, I would estimate that she has... I would say like 200 Christmas balls and we were decorating a Christmas tree that was perhaps like four feet tall. Um, so it was a challenge to try to fit, uh, fit all of these ornaments on one tree. But she also offered a, a lamb roast as incentive. Um, so that was, that was enough to get me there. I definitely would have been in for the lamb roast. So is this thing at this point, do you have a picture? Can we put this in a show note? Is it just like a giant pile of Christmas balls or what? I'll try to get a picture. <laughs> yeah, we're going to we're gonna try and put a picture in the show notes because I feel like, I mean, with your friend's consent, obviously, but I feel like this should be documented. Uh-huh. Uh, one Christmas related point. Are you familiar with the Dolly Parton Christmas album? No. Are you okay. familiar with the Sia Christmas album? <laughs> no. Um, Go, you first. Well, okay. I, I, it's just a strong recommendation for the Dolly Parton Christmas album. Link will be in the show notes. How do you feel about the Sia Christmas album? I'm pretty good, actually. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would say that like my baseline for Dolly Parton is higher than my baseline for Sia. So I'm excited to listen to the Dolly Parton album. I would agree with that. Okay, but we will put both links in the show notes and listeners can decide for themselves. There you go. Sweet. All right. What Christmas-related beers are we drinking today? Um, I am drinking the AOK IPA, um, and this is from Avondale Brewing, which is located in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I'm trying to make a loose Christmas-themed connection. Um, the can has a plane on it that has the word tropical written on it, and I think it's completely unrelated to Christmas. 
Yeah, I see a palm tree and like waves and a setting sun on the back there. You couldn't, you like pick the least Christmas related beer. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe it's connected only through opposition. The only rule of Christmas related beers is that there are no rules. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. So I have um, this, it might be really good or it might be really gross. Uh, it's a Brasserie Harakana coconut stout. So I feel like a stout is at least wintry, so I have that, you know, thematically going on. But but coconut is, well, I don't know what inspired me to buy this, honestly, but now I'm I'm very curious how it tastes. Okay. I'm excited to hear. Extremely Christmassy. Mm. Oh yeah? Yeah. It, it was a Christmas surprise in there. Yeah, hints of cinnamon and nutmeg and cranberries. <laughs> That's a that's a weird thing for an IPA, and I don't know what they're thinking, but cool. I guess it worked out for us. Um, I like this stout, although I'm not tasting actually that much coconut, which is probably a good thing. You don't mm -hmm. want to overdo it there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thumbs up. Um, Alexa, do you want to tell our listeners what we're talking about today? Yeah, so I... I've been wanting to read uh, this book, Against Method, um, by Firebend for a while now, um, and I thought that I would create extra incentive for myself if I committed to talking about it on the podcast. Um, but I, so I, I think initially heard um, about this book when I was watching a, a TED Talk by Naomi Oreskes. And I would say that like half of my interest in reading it was due to her summary of his ideas, which was essentially like uh, he um, he introduced this idea of methodological anarchy. Um, so basically he made the point that there's no such thing as the scientific method. Um, and this was sort of like counter to the idea that the reason that we should trust scientific results is because they use the scientific method. So he sort of like challenged that idea. And I thought that was interesting. Um, but she also showed a, a picture of him. And uh, I don't know if you've looked at pictures of, of him on, on Google, but he just looks like a cool guy. Like if you imagine like the sort of like image of being disgruntled, that's, and there are, it's not just like one image, like all of the images of him are like this. Um, so I was intrigued. So I wanted to read um, this book. And for today's episode, we, or at least I read the introduction and the first five chapters. You may have gone further than that. No, no, I stopped there as well. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, yeah, I was kind of, I was kind of interested in this book because I think that it makes a few points that I think are sort of maybe like rarely made or um, at least rarely made well. Um so first of all, he seems to sort of like take this approach to um, criticizing the arrogance um, surrounding science. Um, and I don't know, that's interesting and complicated, I think, uh, in our current climate. Um, so there seems to be like a lot of, I guess, like um, really like strong adherence on either side, either criticizing science or defending science. And they both sort of seem to be... Um, I guess uh, not particularly like thoughtful arguments. So I hear a lot. So one example I think of is maybe you've seen these lawn signs that have various messages on them. And one of them is science is real. Um, there's a few other things as well. Um, but I think that that epitomizes my sort of um, 
distaste for this idea that as soon as something is scientific, we should just like automatically accept it. And that science uh, sort of trumps all other approaches to gaining knowledge or something like that. Um, and I think this is a response to, I guess, um, critics who uh, I think try to stoke doubt in science. And I also think that's problematic. So I feel like this is like a tricky space. And and I, I thought Firebend seems to, to make some interesting arguments criticizing science that were more thoughtful. Um, so he also sort of challenges this idea that... Um, scientific methods are sort of like inherently objective or that data can be, um, you can talk about raw data or in objective data. Um, and then I think my sort of like favorite of the messages that he conveys in this book is the idea that when people say like, Oh, my ideas are evidence-based or, you know, this is like empirical or, you know, I'm, I'm rooting my beliefs in science that they're often sort of like full of shit, which I think is, is largely true. Um, but there's many things that he says that I disagree with. So, We'll probably get into that as well. Yeah. So I guess before we start on uh, his specific arguments, I'm sort of curious what you think about whether scientists need to have an understanding of the philosophy of science. So I think uh, the socially desirable answer is, of course, and we don't know enough of it and it's super important. But as I read this, I was like, are these just kind of like arcane disputes uh, between people who are, you know, not that relevant to like my life as like a researcher? Uh, can I just be doing my own thing in total ignorance of what these people have to say and have it be reasonably productive? Like, what do you think? <laughs> um, I guess, like, so, I mean, it's worked out for you so far, right? So, um... I, I have uh, a very popular podcast, first of all. <laughs> That's my primary achievement. <laughs> I guess, like, um, I guess my reaction to that is that that sounds fine as long as somebody is allowed to uh i guess criticize science from from a perspective where they understand more about the philosophy um i don't know if it's so much the philosophy of science that people need to have an understanding of or just like a perspective outside of that that we um are told is like the primary perspective as people who have been trained as scientists so like i think that um having i guess more of a historical understanding or a philosophical understanding of the roots of science is helpful in sort of like questioning some of the assumptions. But I think that can be done by it. Like, I guess some per, in a perfect world that would be done well by people within the field. But I think there is something like inherently limiting to, to doing that within a field. Right. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe it's even more important for people outside of the field to have that understanding and to be able to then question scientists and challenge their assumptions. Yeah, I mean, I guess that presumes that those people are going to be talking to scientists. Right. And I, I don't know. Yeah, right. Does that happen? Um, yeah, I mean, I find this stuff personally interesting, right? I find this stuff fun to read, fun to talk about. But I don't know, to be honest, that any of this has changed how I do research, which is so much more about just kind of like practical questions of uh, what's good evidence for a hypothesis, for example, mm -hmm. um, what questions are interesting to me or not. And like, I don't know that Firebender or any other philosopher of science has much to tell me about how to do that. I, I hope that we'll have a bunch of readers write in and tell me how wrong I am about that. But like right now, I just don't, I don't see the applied benefit, I suppose. Uh-huh. Right. Um yeah, that's an interesting question, whether like reading this kind of thing changes the way that you do 
scientific research. I mean, I talk about this kind of stuff when I teach psychology and I've, I've recently been teaching um, our history and systems class, which sort of like gets into some of these issues. So there, like, I feel like, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's fun to teach and, and good for students to learn this maybe information that would cause them to be a little bit less like overconfident about um, becoming scientists or what science can offer. I would say that's the biggest effect it has on me is just like, um, yeah, I reducing overconfidence or, or maybe like um, increasing skepticism. You know, I don't have enough skepticism about science as it is. So I need to yeah, you seem overly credulous to me. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Uh, it just w one one last digression before we get to Firebend. Uh, what what is a history and systems class? So it's a history of psychology class. Um, I like that it's called history and systems here. I never took this is like true of many classes that I now teach. I never took a history and systems class when I was in undergrad. Um, but yeah, the idea is that you're. Yeah, you're teaching undergrads about the history of psychology, but also, I guess, about um, the sort of systems of science that um, surround that history. So for me, like, I like the idea that uh, that it's um, called history and systems because it sort of aligns with this idea of thinking about things systemically. Um, and I think people's understanding of science is increased by by understanding things like um, the publication system and granting systems. And I mean, those are like more contemporary than historical, but, uh, I think that, yeah, we understand scientists behavior better and the findings that they're reporting when we understand the broader systems and the incentives and things like that. And I think that also extends into the historical analysis as well. And do you like explicitly talk about philosophy of science or, or not? Yeah, we talk about these ideas um, and like the idea, the question of whether you can sort of like get closer to objective truth. And um, we talk a little bit about what makes a good theory and things like that. So some of that sort of basic stuff. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I, I will get more into this, I think, when we talk about the details. But like as somebody who, you know, I, I think the systems thing, like you, like you said, it's that's a nice emphasis, right? Because it is so much about working within these specific systems, about publication, about funding, about promotion, all of this stuff. And so kind of reading between the lines of the argument that Firebend was having with people who are kind of, I don't know, I would see it as more proposing kind of an idealized way in which scientific progress happens. And he's saying, yeah, well, no, actually, there's all this messiness inherent in it. My response is kind of like, well, obviously, mm -hmm. right? Like, only only somebody who's never like done this, you know, as their job would think that things proceed in this idealized way. Of course, there's a ton of stuff that's like political or the product of like specific incentives that researchers face. And that, you know, I mean, I guess it's good to like point that out in the philosophical literature, but it also didn't strike me as like particularly surprising to say that. Yeah, I agree that it's not surprising, but I also think that the scientific community doesn't always communicate that that kind of like ambiguity and messiness to the public. So I do see Fireband's point that that when 
we communicate about science to the public, we're often sort of like telling the public the reason that you should believe us is because, you know, we're following this like magical scientific method. And that's why the claims that we make are more trustworthy than the claims that anybody else makes. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I feel like the uncertainty is often not not communicated or or at least not when we talk about science generally. Maybe it is when we talk about specific findings or things like that, especially with with science journalists who are very like careful and thoughtful. And I think there are many. Um, but yeah, when we talk about science broadly, it sort of gets this elite status. Um, and I think a lot of scientists defend that elite status despite our own awareness of the sort of limitations of science. Yeah, that's something that I definitely want to come back to. Um, and I think like the last two years with COVID provide some great examples, uh, both on the like pro-science side and then uh, on the, I would say, overly confident communication of things that are maybe not even scientific questions with this veneer of like scientific legitimacy. You mm -hmm. know, you should do what I say because the experts, blah, blah, blah. But maybe before we get to that, we should say what what his main ideas actually are. Do you feel like you might want to summarize that, please? Yeah, should we, should we go maybe one by one? So I think that his most famous idea, and maybe it's because of... Um, because of the way that he put it is that he he said that when it comes to scientific methodology, anything goes. Um, and so he talks about science as like as anarchy or an, an anarchic enterprise. Um, and yeah, so I, I think what he's saying here is that there's no such thing as the scientific method. So um, so there's there's no sort of like common feature of a scientific study that um, is true across every study. And so it doesn't necessarily make sense to talk about science as like a clear category. Um, but also I think maybe an extension of this idea is that science is only one epistemology or way of knowing about the world and that there's nothing sort of privileged about it. So he uh, makes the argument that other ways of knowing about the world are just as good as science um, and that we it sort of doesn't deserve this um, elite status as a way of learning about the world. Yeah, right. So I this section um, or this contention, like I find myself partly thinking, yeah, of course. And if people think otherwise, then that, that's really a problem with like the theorizing or philosophizing about how science works. And on the other hand, I really want to resist this conclusion of, well, science isn't anything special and, you know, all ways of knowing are equally valid, right? So he has these examples of anything goes of saying like, well, these general rules that people want to propose of how theories should be tested, updated, perhaps rejected, you can always find exceptions, right? Mm -hmm. So... This idea that, you know, this falsificationist idea that's associated with Popper mm -hmm. of uh, theories make these predictions, and if a prediction is falsified, um, then that uh, is grounds to reject the theory. He's, 
And his point is, well, you know, in real life, there's always observations that are inconsistent uh, with the dominant theory and with the theory's challengers. And you just have to decide which inconsistencies you're willing to live with versus not. And how do you come up with that? That's partly like a social process. Scientists might decide that this set of inconsistencies is, you know, more or less palatable than another. And you can't really write down like a strict set of rules um, for how that should be resolved. It's, it's, it's kind of messy. And there I would say, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. That's right. Or, um, the idea that you shouldn't just come up with a new theory, uh, ignoring existing theories, uh, because what we want to do is we want to test and refine the theories that we have. And you have a higher kind of, uh, evidence hurdle to come up with, to, to surmount if you're going to come up with a new theory, right? So we shouldn't propose those lightly. And he's like, well, actually, I can point to these historical cases in which the existing knowledge was wrong, mm -hmm. and these new theories were much better, but they did fly in the face of all this like existing theoretical knowledge. But in the end, we realized that. And so it was totally the right thing to do to say, I'm going to throw out the uh, existing understanding um, of, I don't know, celestial mechanics and propose my new wild thing that isn't even that well supported yet. Mm -hmm. And in the end, people are going to be like, you're right, you know, planet do revolve around the sun at the same time okay so you can find these like specific cases in which science doesn't proceed in this kind of like rigid idealized way of um proposing a theory subjecting it to falsification if the theory fails in enough predictions it's falsified we throw it out we go you know uh build something new etc but the core is always that we bring some evidence and that evidence is something that third parties can inspect and decide how much they believe it. And then we, like scientists or maybe society as a whole, decide what's the best explanation for it, right? And it may be, like to a philosopher, that's too squishy, right? They're like, oh, that's not yeah. a definition. Well, it's interesting because, like later, and I want to talk about this more, but Feyerbend also talks about the, the idea that when a theory, this like sort of abstract thing is inconsistent with data that we shouldn't necessarily like throw out the theory. So we should be sort of like forgiving of these anomalies. And in some ways, that's sort of like how I want to respond to his critique of science and the scientific method. Like I kind of want to say, sure, maybe it's like impossible to give a definition that applies 100% of the time. And you can like sort of poke holes in any definition. And you can say that there are these like limitations and problems. But in general, it's still useful to have this like idea of what science is. And in general, there's like something good about it, you know, like it, it offers a way of learning about the world that has certain advantages. Um, so yeah, I kind of want, I kind of feel like my response is like, yeah, but science is approximately what we mean and a valuable construct in that, like in that, uh, in that way. Yeah. I think there's like an element of like being comfortable with fuzziness and messiness, which maybe is part of his point, but mm -hmm. that, like, you know, in philosophy, where the idea is to come up with clear, logically consistent rules and standards, that it just doesn't – that's not okay there, right? And, you know, like, if if we concede, oh, yeah, sometimes it doesn't work that way, or, well, sometimes it's just not clear what the right thing to do is, and we kind of have to figure it out, and sometimes we get it wrong. It's like, well, that's a failing. It's like, well, maybe it is, but that's just kind of how it works, right? And, mm -hmm. like, why would you expect this, like, messy human enterprise to work according to, like, 
this clear, always internally consistent set of rules. I mean, it's a like it's a social process that's not always going to work in like a logically consistent and rule bound way. And we we don't abandon it because it gives us results that we that we like. Um, so, yeah, sorry, I see you're wanting to say something. Oh, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I think even even though I. I find the conclusion like, oh, we just can't define science and there's like nothing special about science. I find that sort of unsatisfying. I still do like his point that, um, I don't know, that maybe we shouldn't always assume that science is the best way of learning about the world. And to me, that idea is appealing as like a challenge to the way that I have been sort of educated and trained, I think. Um, so... Yeah, as somebody who is like in an empirical field, uh, I feel like I have um, been taught throughout my education and career that science is the best way of learning about the world. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's like sort of healthy to question that assumption or to consider are there like exceptions to that. Um, and yeah, with that in mind, I was sort of curious, like, can you think of of beliefs or topics where you feel like there's a better way to learn about the world than science, or maybe where you feel like your, your beliefs rest on knowledge that is like unscientific. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Like I will answer that question. Uh, (laughs) I promise. But, but, but before I do, like, I want to talk about one part, uh, of, uh, this book that I found unconvincing, which is, I think a problem because he brings it as sort of the example of like, here's where science falls short. And he talks about this example of uh, Chinese traditional herbal medicine. Mm -hmm. And he has this kind of interesting historical uh, story about how in the first half of the 20th century, Western medicine was viewed as kind of um, preeminent within China. And then kind of for political reasons, they were like, well, we now want to push back on that and we want to elevate kind of traditional herbal medicine. And he says um, that uh, this illustrates some, uh, he says, lacunae, uh, I guess, holes Mm -hmm. uh, in Western medicine. Uh, Nor can one expect that the customary scientific approach will eventually find an answer. In the case of herbal medicine, the approach consists of two steps. Um, so, uh, this herbal concoction, uh, I'm skipping some stuff. Um, then the specific effects of each, each constituent are determined. The total effect on a particular organ explained on their basis. I think he's talking about how Western medicine would approach it. Um, so break it down into its constituent parts and see, do those constituent parts do anything? This neglects the possibility, he says, that the herb taken in its entirety changes the state of the whole organism and that this new state of the whole organism, rather than a specific part of the herbal concoction, a magic bullet, as it were, um, that cures the diseased organ. Okay, so I would say the presumption in that paragraph is that the medicine does something useful, mm-hmm. right? So cures the diseased organ. How do you know that? You have to give the medicine to some people who are sick and see if it makes them better and find some group to control uh, 
as a control group to see, do they not get better at the same rate, Uh right? And without that, you have nothing to explain. You don't know if the medicine fucking works or not. Uh So isn't that like that A, to me, that's fundamentally the scientific method. We look for evidence to see if the thing works. And then let's say it does, okay? Which is kind of presumed in this this paragraph because he says that this like, this approach really reveals holes in the scientific method. So you're presuming the thing isn't, you know, just inert, like it does do something. Uh And then I would say, okay, So we know that the thing does something. We don't know why. Also a scientific question, right? right? So if you're like in a simple-minded way, we shouldn't look at each individual, I don't know, chemical constituent of the medicine and try and figure out like individually, what are they doing? We have to look at holistically, how do they interact? Fine. But that's just like, okay, our theories aren't good enough. And you Uh might say, well, we can't figure out why it works, but we know it works. That's a scientific answer to me, right? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's a bad example. Um, Yeah, it's also an interesting example for me because I have a a friend and also like colleague in the humanities who is like very critical of science and she's like, ah, we can't learn anything about the world this way. And when I sort of like, yeah, I think she's like um, a really smart person and sometimes she's sort of like the voice in my head when I'm trying to like defend the the value of of science. And um, and one of the things I thought of was so she she has a pets uh, a dog in particular that she's really obsessed with and i'm like if you like watched somebody give like some kind of concoction to you know 50 dogs and all of them died and then somebody gave a different concoction to another 50 dogs and all of them seemed fine like which one would you give to your dog right and whatever it's a silly example but i don't know i mean it's just like totally um i think totally indefensible to say that we're not relying on empirical data and that we don't care about what science has to teach us like right in the end you can't help but care about evidence as is showed by the fact that like implicitly when he's writing about this stuff he's presuming that it does do something right so it's it's obviously important whether the thing makes you better or not and then if it does then we're only arguing about how which is okay totally fine to say like we don't understand how but I mean, okay, so I promised I would answer your question. I think the Chinese medicine example is terrible. But but I do think, so this is something that's, I've noticed a lot when it comes to what should COVID policy be. So for example, um, how quickly should we be reopening? Um, Should we be imposing these restrictions on people versus should we be letting them um, do what they want? And a lot of the time when people are on the pro-restriction side, they say that we should, quote unquote, listen to the experts. And I think that expert advice is valuable in telling you some things, right? So they can give you a range of estimates for given these different policies, um, how many COVID cases can we expect? How many hospitalizations can we expect? Like, and, and honestly, I think the uncertainty there is going to be quite large, right? But like, they, they can tell you something. But they can't make a policy decision for you that says, how should we wait uh, preserving lives or the public health versus the economic impacts. And I think trying to outsource that sort of a question, which to me is like a political question or a moral question to, I don't know, public health experts, it just seems ridiculous. Like that's not the question that they're, they are trained or able to answer. You're just like confused about what the question is. Like you can't take like a moral trade-off and say, well, we'll just ask an epidemiologist. Yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of examples that come to my mind, too, is like uh, when, yeah, scientists or experts in some domain are asked to to resolve a moral dilemma, basically. And yeah, I guess I 
I think that often like the moral question is like replaced with some sort of related empirical question, but that doesn't actually uh, address the moral question, right? So with with COVID, there are questions about like, you know, whether it's like okay to be considering like sacrificing people's lives for, I don't know, some kind of like economic gain or something like that. And people just have, I think, fundamental moral beliefs about whether or not that's okay. Um, and how much you want to sort of like get into weighing the, um, the costs and benefits of that. Like some people are just, I, I think that those, those beliefs for many people are not really that, that open to evidence. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that like evidence there is, is irrelevant. So experts can definitely tell you something useful, sure. right? On, yeah, on, on both sides, right? You can also like try and quantify the economic damage of like different <laughs> kinds of like lockdown strategies, for example. But like they can't answer the important question. Um, are there other things that you had in mind as being like questions that people want scientific answers to that just aren't scientific questions? Uh, sometimes I feel like these kinds of, um, I don't know. Uh, I think it's always these kinds of like issues where science is brought in to address some kind of like moral issue. And I don't think that, as you say, like, I think science can address related issues. Like it can address like the extent of damage or harm or things like that. Um, but at its core, it's not going to sway people one way or the other um, on what they like think is inherently valuable. Yeah. So like one thing that's been on my mind just because of like recent, you know, the Supreme Court stuff is abortion, yep. where I feel like really people on both sides kind of want to bring in sort of inappropriately to me, these like scientific questions of like, when exactly does the fetus feel pain? Like, how do you def define the beginning of a heartbeat? Is that a heart or is it just a tube that does a heartbeat like thing? And it's like, right. does that, is that important? Like morally, it's like, that seems to me to like, totally morally miss the point of the question. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good example. Like, uh, there are, I think there are a lot of empirical discussions surrounding abortion that don't get at people's sort of like core moral intuitions about abortion. Um, and so, yeah, I think one really important core moral question is like, you know, sort of like, how do you define life? And when do you think it starts? And, you know, um, and then, yeah, then, then there are these debates about like, yeah, heartbeat and um, economic ramifications and things like that. And yeah, I just feel like they're not addressing people's and as they as they like as they shouldn't. Right. They, they, they're just irrelevant to people's sort of like, I think, basic intuitions about right or wrong in these situations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. OK, so it sounds like we're hmm. We're sort of mixed so far. We're like part of what he's claiming seems like kind of obviously true about, you know, you can't come up with this perfectly orderly and logically consistent framework for how theories should be tested, updated, or abandoned. It sounds like we're anti, well, that means that, you know, anything can be science or science is just one way of knowing that's no better or worse than anything else. Um, and I guess we come down on his side on, on 
people want science to do things that it isn't well suited to do, or like there's this sort of like expertise or authority that scientists or people who like maybe just use that mantle for like political ends kind of take advantage of. Yeah, I think that's fair. Sweet. All right. Well, so I guess that's the first major point that he tries to make. I guess I really wanted to talk about theory proliferation, which strikes me as sort of a crazy idea, and maybe you'd be willing to outline it a little bit. Yeah, so um, so I think it's like mostly in um, in chapter three of, of the book. Um, he makes, I would say, two broad points, and I really like one of those points, and I dislike the other point. Um, but he draws a connection between them. So I think his first point is that like when we are conducting scientific studies and developing new scientific hypotheses, we shouldn't be like tied to existing theory. Um, so you shouldn't have to couch your new ideas or your hypotheses in existing theory. Um, because this like sort of gives undeserved weight to a theory just for like existing in the first place or something like that. Um, but then he goes on to say that it's like proliferation of theories is good for science. And maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but kind of like the more the better. Um, so I really like the first part and I really um, dislike the second part. What do you think, Yoel? Um, I think I agree with that. Uh, I think that it seems super obvious to me that you have to have some way of distinguishing theories that you believe more from theories that you believe less. And like, I feel like he's doing a little bit of, I mean, he writes in a way that's very entertaining, but that can occasionally be frustrating because I feel like he's just kind of dicking around in a way. And, and <laughs> you know what I mean? Definitely. And like, well, yeah. he is sort of dicking around, right? Like the, the book is like, um, I'm not going to know who this is now. It's like a, a letter to his colleague, right? Basically. Oh yeah. Lakatosh. Yes. Thank you. Right, right. And and he's sort of like playful in the introduction. Uh -huh. um, and he's like, yeah, well, I'm just gonna throw some stuff out there, man. And like, we'll see what stays. <laughs> Don't hold me to any of it. But like, he'll often do this thing where I feel like he says one thing that's like, sort of reasonable. And then he like, sort of plays with the idea of extending it to something that's like completely unreasonable. And then he but he does it in a way where he might just be like, I'm ah, just kidding. Now, that's not really what I meant. Right. And, and here, it seems clear that like, if you take this idea seriously of like, any old theory is as good as any other, and we should keep around as many as possible. Um, that's crazy, because then you don't know how to do anything, right? Like whose theory for like vaccine production or bridge building should we be using, right? Right. Whereas if you're like, oh yeah, even discarded theories have something interesting to offer. It's like, well, yeah, of course that's true, but it's kind of obvious. So like, right, either it's obvious and true or it's not obvious, but like, seems like completely wrong. Yeah. Okay. So like, I think it's really like it's easy to defend the idea that there needs to be like a hierarchy of of theories so we need to distinguish between theories that we believe more and theories that we believe less um i'm not sure if fireben would disagree with that um but maybe like a more interesting thing to debate is like the question of whether we should discard theories entirely this is something that i talk about in my history and systems class and i ask students like you know is it important to like get rid of theories that you know, we consistently find no evidence for them. Um, and they 
tend to fall on the side of like, no, we should never get rid of a theory completely. Like even theories with so little evidence supporting them have some value, which I think like it really like seems consistent with with Fire Ben's idea that theory proliferation is good and like sort of the more ideas you have out there is the better. Um, and I would argue that some theories should be thrown out like that there are some theories for which there's like so much contradictory evidence that we should just abandon them. And then I think that there is always some risk of falsely abandoning an idea. Um, but that like having these ideas like floating around, interfering with better ideas could be harmful to science. Yeah. So I think that this so these are your students who are like, oh, let's just keep these old theories around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think it's a little bit depressing because it concedes in a way that what we're doing isn't actually that important. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, are you going to go to the fucking doctor who's like, I believe in the four humors and my, my <laughs> you know, cure for your, I don't know, viral infection is bloodletting or maybe I give you some mercury. It's like, fuck no. I'm not going to that guy. I don't want other people to go to that guy. I don't think Medicare should reimburse that guy, right? Like when there's life or death consequences, we all know it fucking matters whether the theory is wrong or right, because it's important to get it right. And like in our little area where it's like we're mostly amusing ourselves, then yeah, okay, let's still talk about the id or whatever. Right, exactly. I mean, I, yeah, I think that it would be interesting to ask them that question and specify the domain um and see whether they're okay with like throwing out the idea of yeah i've of like curing your cold with yeah i don't know mercury i've 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 read like these (laughs) old medical textbooks that are like you know like scotch is the cure to this or whatever and i'm like how harmful is that really i've been doing my own research (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that totally seems right. right. Um, okay. Well, you know, speaking of the cure for everything that ails you, I'm out of beer and I think I need another one. Okay. Sounds good.
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention us or DM us and we'll see it. If you'd like to email us, the show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, that goes to all three of us. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com. You can listen to any of our episodes there. You can drop us a line there as well. Um, if you're enjoying the show, we just ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice that just really helps other people discover the show. Uh, so that's it for promo. Uh, Alexa, do you have anything to add? Nope. Sounds good. Great. What are we drinking? Uh, I am now drinking uh, Sierra Nevada's Hot Bullet Double IPA. Whoa, you're just like all IPA all the time tonight. Yep. <laughs> Was that deliberate or? I mean, it's in the Christmas theme, you know, everybody knows. Yeah, obviously everybody knows. Uh, Listen, I was brought up Jewish, first of all. That's a microaggression. (laughs) And yes, thank you. I'm glad you apologized. Apology not accepted, by the way, but I'm glad that you apologized. Um, What have I got? I have a bizarrely inappropriate beer that I found in the back of my fridge. It is, it's a Matera Weiss Ventura. Um, it's a sour beer with clementine and it's a, like a white beer. So this is like super summery, not at all seasonally appropriate. I don't know how it got back there to be honest. Weiss Ventura. I love yeah. that so much. Yeah. And it's got a little, it's got a little Ace Ventura looking guy here. It's like a little raccoon or no, that's people, a skunk. People don't talk about Ace Ventura enough in my opinion. You're, you know, you're right. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't get enough credit. All right. Well, Cheers. Cheers. It's pretty good. Yum. Okay. Uh, so yeah, before the break, we were talking about this idea um, of firebends about, you know, just let lots of different theories flourish. Um, and I had a pretty negative reaction to that. Like, first of all, because like, I feel in psychology that we haven't done ourselves a service by basically adopting that, um, th- that as a standard practice, right? I don't, I don't think that has helped us. Um, and I think it fails to help in the following way. When somebody comes to you and says, what does the evidence suggest I should do here? You don't have a good answer for them because there's like a billion conflicting theories about, um, what the best thing to do is. And I think you also see that, um, with COVID where you can go on the web and find a million different theories for how COVID should be treated. So ivermectin, uh, the anti-parasite medication, is the most famous example of that. Mm-hmm. But there's a ton of other stuff, too. Pick your substance, and somebody will have written up some reason why you should expect it to work against COVID. And maybe they'll even have some, like, you know, uh, quote-unquote scientific evidence, like, oh, we did a trial in Bangladesh with, like, three dudes, and it seemed like it worked, or whatever. Uh-huh. Right? So... That seems like a terrible state of affairs because people really do go and read this stuff and they're like, oh, well, I won't take a vaccine, but instead I'll, uh, you know, eat a lot of cumin or whatever. Mm -hmm. That seems unambiguously bad. Mm -hmm. And again, it seems to reflect that in the real world, we really do need to say this is true and this is false. Like when it's not academic, I think I can't imagine firemen sitting here being like, oh, yeah, totally fine. Like, just uh, let a thousand theories about the best COVID treatment bloom and people will figure it out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to imagine what he would say. I mean, one question that I have in in thinking about sort of the the like optimal scenario where we are. I guess, like discarding theories or discrediting them is like what exactly that looks like. Um, So yeah, I'm trying to imagine like what my, what my students are thinking when they're like, when they say, 
yeah, we should maintain all of these theories because maybe there's some like sort of kernel of value in each idea or something like that. And you could, I guess, imagine a solution. This is like unrealistic, but just sort of like hypothetically where you just erase a theory. Like there's just no evidence of it anywhere. Nobody can like look it up. Nobody knows that anyone has ever suggested, you know, like eating toothpaste to cure COVID, right? Um, and then, okay, so just like discarding that idea, um, you could also imagine a scenario where the idea exists on on the internet and there's like lots of people who are objecting to that idea. And that seems good for many reasons. So first of all, there's like the fact that there are objections to the idea or evidence against the idea is out there. So people don't like test the idea, like not knowing whether people have tried it. Um, but then there's like also this sort of like reactance where it seems like sometimes just sort of the suggestion of an idea like makes that idea more tenable or, you know, they sort of like get these cult followings and things like that. Um, so, yeah, an, I mean, an obvious example is like the um, the original like paper that people used to cite to claim that um, vaccines cause autism. If you look that paper up, it's got like retracted all over it. And or at least like this is what happens with my search settings. I don't know if like other people are getting different stuff, but um, there's just like everything that comes up is talking about how this is like completely has been completely refuted and there's no evidence for it. Um, and yet you know, there's like such a, a following for this idea. So yeah, I don't know. What does it look like to communicate that an idea has been discredited? Like, what are we going for? Yeah, no, I mean, like, that's such a difficult question, right? And I, I don't think that uh, Feyerabend, when he was writing this, I mean, in his particular kind of historical context, it was an era of like very centralized information dissemination mm -hmm. and like a really just like extreme, I would say like blind trust in like expertise. Right. And, and, and I can see him reacting against that. Um, and I, I wonder what he would think now when it's like, you can find any crazy shit you want on the internet. Right. Right. And, but at the same time, like I do, like I'm sympathetic to this libertarian idea of like, let people put ideas out there because oftentimes the, like the consensus is wrong. And mm -hmm. you can see in real time that the people who are sort of dissenters, all of a sudden their dissent now becomes like kind of the conventional wisdom or the, like the mainstream. And if you were to say like, oh, we want Facebook to like shut down all of this, like misinformation that people are promoting, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, the misinformation would have been that like wearing masks is a good idea because the CDC was telling us, yeah, masks don't help you here. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, I do think that you can't, there's just no practical way to say, well, we know what's true and we're going to ban all this false shit because like, yeah, we know that some things are unambiguously false. Like, you know, that, uh, the vaccines cause autism study, like the data were faked. That's bullshit. They don't. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's no way to apply that as a principle broadly because there's all sorts of stuff where we're less confident. And like, whenever you, I don't know, try and enable some authority to say like, well, we're going to kick you off the internet for posting misinformation. You're going to catch up people who are correct, but who just happen to disagree with the incorrect uh, at the time consensus. Yeah, right. Which I feel like, yeah, I mean, that sort of connects to the part. Um, yeah, maybe we're sort of like cherry picking the, the, the good parts and discarding the bad parts of 
um, fireman, fireman's argument here, but uh, yeah, that sort of highlights the good part, which is this idea that we shouldn't just like take theories that already exist as gospel, you know, and not, um, and not be willing to sort of challenge them or even just sort of like test completely unrelated ideas. Um, and yeah, again, I think like the sort of like boring version of that is, yeah, we shouldn't stay wed to theories that have already been proposed. Um, but maybe like a more radical departure from, from the status quo would be to say like, you can do a study and maybe even like get funding or get it published without having any sort of theoretical basis or without couching it in existing theory. And that's something that at least in psychology is not really allowed right now. Um, or at least I would say like from the, of the granting mechanisms that I know. So like, for instance, the national science foundation, um, requires that people establish the intellectual merit of their studies. And what in practice I think that is, is like, you know, tying your work to existing theories and, you know, establishing how there's a, some kind of lacune, if, uh, if, <laughs> if that's the right word in, in the existing literature and how you're going to like, um, uh, fill those holes, right. With your research. So, um, so yeah, I don't think there's like a lot of room right now for doing research that has, you know, that doesn't purport to have any sort of theoretical basis. Um, yeah, I think, no, that's totally right. And, you know, that's something that I think we've talked about on the podcast before people like Paul Rosen have pointed out that we in psychology have this like kind of obsession with formal theory and that, that he argues, and I agree is kind of a misunderstanding of how science progresses and that we look at, you know, more developed sciences like physics, for example, we're like, mm -hmm. well, they're super theoretical and so should we be. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and like the natural sciences, for example, um, there were hundreds of years of just like observing stuff. And that's still like a totally legit way to do science. Like we're going to carefully observe some things that we think might be important. And that becomes then the data on which theories can be based. Right. So like there, if, if, if the contention is, yeah, theory isn't the be-all and end-all of science, then I 100% agree with that. Like, I think, I don't know. I mean, maybe like a philosopher would think this is just like a very like dumb or vulgar way to think about it. But like, I so care about outcomes, right? And to me, like the proof of whatever you're doing, of your method working or not, or your like kind of meta-theoretical orientation being good or not, is are you producing things that are useful? Mm -hmm. And like, medical science has produced like amazing vaccines and treatments mm -hmm. over the last two years. And I think you got to be like, wow, they're doing something right. Mm -hmm. And like Chinese herbal medicine, whatever its merits has not produced any COVID vaccines. And so I'm like Western medicine scores the win there, you know? And like, yeah, physics, I don't know. We build bridges, we launch rockets, we build uh, computers that we can carry around in our pockets. All of that stuff is based on like previous theory that worked that produced these practical results and like mm -hmm. i feel like that's a very nice yardstick it's like well can you use it to actually do something or not mm -hmm. right um okay so so back to this idea of like discarding theories do you think that in psychology we have discarded any theories um i guess like you could answer that question like within the last 20 years or within the last like 70 years and it might be different 
Yeah, so I think it, the short answer is not really. Um, and there's a paper that I'm going to try and find for the show notes that I think was by Tony Greenwald, where he looked to see, you know, what happens to theoretical disputes? Are they resolved? Or do people just sort of lose interest? <laughs> and it, it, it's unfortunately, it's a ladder. It's just like people kind of like lose interest and water off. And I think that's like the very typical case in in psychology is like we don't really resolve anything. We don't decide that like this theory is unambiguously false or that like between these competing theories that this one is the best one. We just sort of, I don't know, like get distracted by the next shiny thing and, and forget about, you know, what we're what we were previously arguing about. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's my experience, too. So that's what I would have said the answer is. And that's pretty consistent with, um, I think, points that Fire Ben makes as well, um, <clears throat> where he says, like, even in cases where this is not just a theoretical dispute, right? This is a case where you have, like, contradictory evidence or evidence that's like... So he makes a distinction between having sort of, like, quantitatively versus qualitatively different um, evidence, um, and so he says like, yeah, sure. There's many, many instances where a theory like is off on its predictions, like quantitatively, like it doesn't maybe like the version of that in psychology is like, you don't get the effect size right or something like that. Um, but there are other cases where we just like are qualitatively wrong. So like time after time, we see examples of, um, evidence that's directly in, in conflict with like our theory or something like that. And he sort of, he sort of says like, yeah, in cases like this, people are just like, meh. And they like continue to believe those, those ideas, or at least they like don't completely, they don't abandon them. Um, and it's kind of interesting because this is something that like, as scientists, we're really critical of, um, I guess like non-scientists for these kinds of claims. So one of the biggest criticisms I think that's leveled against um, conspiracy theorists is that, they're like unresponsive to failed prophecies, right? So like if, you know, there's a prophecy about like Q, Q makes some prediction about what's going to happen and, you know, the followers are like waiting, you know, in anticipation on inauguration day to like find this prophecy come true and then it doesn't. And then people continue to believe this conspiracy theory. And, you know, people outside of that that circle are like, what a bunch of idiots, you know, why, why don't you abandon your theory when it's, when predictions are violated? But I think the exact same thing happens in science all the time. Yeah. You know, I, I think the difference is that there is some like sort of terrain that people are fighting over. And if your theory or, or kind of like more broadly, you know, your, I don't know, paradigm or whatever, keeps falling down, the new people are going to come, come along and poke holes in it and get all the funding and get the jobs and you're, the old school is going to die out, right? So there's, it's sort of like the QAnon people can go talk to themselves forever mm. and like there's no putting a stop to that. But there's kind of in science these finite resources of like getting money, um, g getting your papers published, uh, getting jobs. And so there's a way to kick out the people who are losing, um, in a way that there isn't for conspiracy theories, right? So like uh, a discarded theory in psychology is like one that you can't get funded, basically? 
Yeah. Or like, you know, I can never get a job as a behaviorist now. I, I mean, I don't think maybe, maybe this is just my ignorance. Maybe these jobs are out there. I just don't know about it. But if I'm like, I'm a person who studies human behavior by running rats through mazes, mm. you know, I think most psychology departments are going to be like, uh, no, thank you. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, I mean, I guess this is something where I am a little bit like more sympathetic to fire up and maybe your students is like behaviorism is maybe a good example of something where it was the dominant approach in psychology for a long time. And then people sort of threw it out because they're like, well, I can't explain these more complex behaviors like uh, language, for example. But it still has tons of useful applications. If you're like trying to train an animal or a child or, I don't know, make an addictive smartphone game, behaviorism has a lot of useful things to tell you, right? So I guess you would say like, well, even though it's been sort of, quote unquote, discarded, by like the mainstream of the field, there's still a lot of useful aspects to it. And there's still a lot of it that's true. Right. I guess like one risk maybe of discarding theories is that uh, it seems like ideas in in science and also like maybe more broadly um, follow these sort of like pendulum patterns where, you know, at one point people will have like a ex- really extreme acceptance of one version of an idea. Um, and then people will respond to that and be like, this is too extreme. We need to go in the other direction. So like, for instance, with behaviorism, like the idea like, oh, we also need to consider introspection, like, or other methods of learning about what's going on in people's minds. Like we can't just like ignore that. Um, We can't just look at uh, behavior as the only way to understand human psychology. Right. And so then there's this like pushback that pushes the pendulum in the other direction. And maybe these sort of like extreme ideas that at some points seem like, it's useful to discard them are sort of useful counterpoints to the opposite end of the pendulum or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that there's, there's definitely the observation is, you know, science like any other kind of like social process follows these like, um, I don't know, trends, I guess of like something is dominant and then we decide that it kind of sucks and then it's terrible to do it. And that that probably like leaves a lot on the table or like then you start like abandoning useful insights. I think that's totally right. And I, I think that's like this is again, like I feel like with all of the stuff that Fireman writes, there's like a totally reasonable interpretation where you're like, oh, yeah, no, that's like yeah, unambiguously. Right? right. And then there's a way you put it where you're like, yeah, but no, that can't be right. 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 So it's not like. If we're like, what's a, are, is behaviorism like a great explanation of like language learning? No. And I think like most psychologists would agree with that. Is it completely worthless? Obviously not. It has a lot of like useful applications. So, I mean, yeah, if it's just that people sort of, or the field, I guess, sort of overcorrects and like forgets useful things in its rush away from the thing that it's now discarding. Yeah. I mean, I think that totally happens. Right. All right. Do you want to go um, on to Fireben's third idea that we'll talk about? Yes. Let's tackle the last one. Yeah. So the last idea that we wanted to talk about is um, Fireben makes this point that sometimes data will contradict theory. Um, and he says that in these cases, we shouldn't necessarily question the theory. So yeah, in cases when our observations are inconsistent with some kind of theoretical framework, this doesn't necessarily mean that we should um, discard the theoretical framework or that there's anything wrong with a the theoretical framework. Um, 
And definitely my initial reaction to that was like, this is a really problematic way to, to think about um, the relationship between data and theory. So um, I think that, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is reactions to failed replication studies. Um, and I think it's really problematic to respond to failed replications by saying like, uh, just like sticking to the theory and questioning the quality of replication data, right? Like, um, I think that there has to be some point where we say, okay, there's like enough evidence against an idea, um, that we should start to be, we should, yeah, start to question this theory. Um, and if you, if you have this like mentality where like when there's inconsistency between theory and data, you question the data. Um, this just seems like totally contrary to like at that point, like, why would you bother collecting data? And this is something that I say to, um, to students often when, uh, when they talk about their thesis or dissertation results or whatever, and, you know, they don't get what they predict. And so they, you know, they then like question whether they did the methods right, or they question whether they operationalize things right or something like that. And I'm just like, well, if that was going to be your conclusion, like, why'd you bother doing the study? You know, why don't you, <laughs> why don't you sort of like question your hypotheses or your theory? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that's totally right. I do think that there's a little bit of a subtle distinction here. Of I feel in psychology where most of the time when we have those sorts of debates, not even arguing about the underlying theory, we're arguing about the finding, which is different, right? So I think it's reasonable to say, hey, you know, I have this theory that has these desirable properties, and here we have some observations, and everybody agrees what the observations are, and they're not consistent with the theory. And I'm not going to throw the theory out right away, because it has these other things going for it. Maybe we can figure out what's going on with those observations. Maybe we can adjust the theory um, to accommodate them. Maybe we figure out that those observations actually were misleading or wrong in some way that's poorly understood. We're going to keep looking at that. Right. And I feel like in psychology, that's not what we're doing. We're saying like, well, I observed this, but you didn't, but you're wrong. Right. And so we're not even agreeing about what the like kind of facts of the matter are. Mm -hmm. That seems like a different situation, doesn't it? Well, I think that like both things happen in psychology. So there, I think there are times when um, when a replication happens and people defend the original finding right so like i guess we would need to make a distinction between like effects and theories or findings and theories or something like that and there's definitely like disagreement about whether um a particular replication result bears on an original finding and you know that's where we're getting into like discussion of things like hidden moderators and things like that like is there anything that's different about the replication study um that distinguishes it from the original study that is a reason why the replication didn't find what the original study did and i think that those debates are very difficult but perhaps still easier to resolve than debates about how a failed replication um should shape our understanding of a theory so like one of the the like examples that comes to mind is the idea of ego depletion. Um, you know, we've had some like pretty big failures to replicate basic ego depletion effects, some of which admirably have been led by um, like some of the sort of foundational ego depletion researchers. And then there's this question of, okay, well, do we now 
do we now question ego depletion as a theory? Um, or do we just think like, okay, this one sort of like way of testing it um, ha- is flawed or, you know, maybe we operationalize things poorly or we should be testing it in a different way. And yeah, like I think those are, those are even harder, but ideally if we're sort of um, learning things as a science, we, need to be able to figure those situations out, right? We need to know, like, should we have less faith in ego depletion now because, you know, this, this like canonical operationalization of the idea has like failed to yield the predicted effect. Yeah. I think that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that example because that's a, a case where I a hundred percent believe that the phenomenon exists like I've experienced it. I feel everybody has experienced it. You know, you come home from a long day of working hard and you're like, I don't want to fucking make any decisions. I don't want to do anything that's hard. I want to eat ice cream and I want to watch The Simpsons, you know? And so like, if that's the idea that like, yeah, doing things that are like kind of unpleasant or difficult requires some force of will and that sometimes we just don't feel like it, that's got to be true. But that to me is like such a separate question from, you know, do these experiments show X effect or whatever? So then I I guess maybe it's it's about the mapping of the the study to the underlying phenomenon it's meant to explain or something, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think ego depletion is like a good example of a situation where, I mean, sometimes we we want to have our cake and eat it too, right? We want the idea to be this like novel idea. Um where we start to say like, oh, it's different than just like being tired. Um, but then we also want the idea to be supported by the evidence. And that's where you start to like um, have to expand beyond the the paradigms that I guess I have been traditionally used. So it's like, I mean, this is just, I think, a general phenomenon within social psychology Um we want to claim that we're learning new things about human behavior. Um, and so we sort of like reach for these really like surprising things. So, I mean, I think the way that ego depletion is usually conceptualized in theory, there's like really a clear distinction made between ego depletion and like, just like being tired at the end of the day and sort of like, um, not having a lot of energy to do hard stuff. Right. Um, but then, but then, yeah, when that, those like, those findings are challenged and the replication evidence seems to undermine that. Um, Then we sort of like go back into like specific mode and we're like, okay, well um, that's not exactly what we were saying. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I like this because it's just like completely uninformed speculation based on introspection. But like, I feel like for me, like, it's not just being tired. It's my brain is tired because like I can go for a run, for example, because I like running and it doesn't involve any sort of like mental effort, right? It's that I don't want to use my brain for anything. So it's not just fatigue. It's not like I want to go to bed. It's like, I want to do something that doesn't require thinking. So I feel like that is consistent with like ego depletion as described, right? Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I had this conversation um, with... Uh, a friend of mine who is like a cognitive psychologist. Um, and that's what I said. I was like, I like still believe in ego depletion because like intuitively it's so appealing. And he was basically like, well, what about the idea of task switching? So like sometimes when we 
switch to a new task that we haven't been working on, we have like renewed energy for it. And this is apparently like a pretty established finding in the cognitive literature and things like that. And it makes exactly the opposite predictions of cognitive or sorry, of um, ego depletion. Um, so I don't know. I, f- I was like, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe I just sort of like have an availability bias and I'm like, okay, um, these are the examples that I can think of that are consistent with ego depletion. And so I feel like it's real, but anyways, I guess like the broader point being, I find ego depletion really intuitive and I also have the reaction to failed replications of these like very specific operationalizations. And I, I wonder like if they did it a different way, would they find it? Like I sort of think that they might, um, if you just like use Yoel as your subject and, you know, tire him out and then put ice cream in front of him. <laughs> exactly. No, I think that's, and I think here we're totally on fire up inside actually. It's like, yeah, you know, I buy those data. Like I believe that those replications didn't show much of an effect if, if any, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but there's something to the theory. Right. And so maybe it just hasn't been tested. Right. And like, not, let's not throw it out just because the data are, right now unimpressive yeah i mean i don't want to land on like we're on fireben's side on this because i think that's like a i i do think that's like a really problematic like a general approach to say that you know we can always just like ignore the data if they're not consistent with our intuitions about the theories like that is really the entire point of doing science is to be like okay even if i have this intuitive theory you know i'm open to like the observations proving me wrong so it's it's not that I think that any time that data are inconsistent with theory that we need to abandon the theory. Um, but I think, I think we can't be, so I, I feel like I'm uncomfortable with the level of um, fuzziness that Fireben wants to allow. Like he sort of wants to say, yeah, when they're inconsistent, like who really knows? And I think, I don't know. I think we need to make our theories more accountable. Can, is it, can I say, in my heart, I feel like this this still feels true, and currently we do not have good evidence that it actually is. <laughs> you can say that on your famous yeah. podcast. That's right. That's right. I should be careful what I say on this large platform. Um, <laughs> no, I, I mean I think that's what you say is totally true, though, right? Like we need to be, we need to have different standards for kind of like different levels of belief, I guess, right? And if we're going to give like policy advice, for example, or write an op-ed, like I think we should be pretty confident. But if it's like, well, I don't know, um, we're bullshitting over beers or even we're thinking about like, hey, is this something we could study? Then maybe having the intuition that like this is right is good enough. Yeah, I like that. I like um and maybe that's relevant also to like the the idea of like when should a theory be discarded or something like that like maybe some theories need to be sort of like categorized in a in a space that we're not going to devote a bunch of money to it or you know uh yeah write a write an op-ed or you know a press release for NPR or something like that but um but maybe like it'll be in the like dusty corner of a file drawer if file drawer is like not really the right <laughs> the right term um to like if we um yeah i guess feel like we need like a counterpoint to the the research going too far in another direction or something like that i don't know i'm, I'm not i don't think that was a very satisfying 
resolution for this. Well, there you go. I mean, real science is messy. And uh, we we couldn't expect anything else. That sounds like a conclusion that Firebend would approve of. 